I would like to play a game before we start the preaching. All right? Is that all right? Of course it is. I've got the mic. Okay? I'm going to play a game. Here's the game. The game is name that movie. All right? Name that movie. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read. I'm going to read some lines from a movie. Okay? Now let me read let me read the paragraph and when you know the movie then you know you can, you can tell me what you think it is, okay? All right? And then uh so I want to do that for two movies here, okay? Here we go. Movie number one. Let me gotta get it in character here too. Okay, here we go. Let me tell you why you're here. That's an awfully short paragraph. I wanted to. going to read the whole thing anyway. <laughs> Were you in first service? You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? And that's when you were supposed to say, the Matrix. (laughs) Do you want to know what it is? Asks Morpheus. Neo nods. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window, when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What's the next line? Ah, you don't know, do you? (laughs) What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch, a prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Huh? And you know what happens next, right? He pulls out two pills, right? The red pill and the blue pill. You know, because the, you know, the plot of the movie is that there's this this war that's been going on between computers and humans and the computers have humans that, you know, the computers have, have created this false reality in the minds of humans to keep the humans in bondage and the, the computers electronically feed this virtual reality into their brain. And so, you know, we think that we're in church now sitting and watching and listening and all of that, but, you know, that's just a virtual reality that's being injected into our brains when, in fact, our bodies are actually in these pods. We're entombed in these pods and the computer feeds off of our body. That's how the computers get the, the fuel and everything. But, but a few humans have escaped the pods and they're you know, in conflict with the computer and, and then Morpheus has found Neo who he thinks is you know, kind of a Christ figure and he's telling him about the matrix and, and then And then he comes to the crossroads of his little talk with him, right? He talks about the red pill and the blue pill. 
And he says, this is your last chance. This is your last chance. I'm going to get back in character. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. But you take the red pill, you stay in wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth. Nothing more. And, you know, he takes the red pill. Yeah. Hmm. This morning, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that is a red pill passage. Hmm. It's a red pill passage. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You'll find that on page 830 of your church Bibles. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. This is a red pill passage of Scripture. I'm going to offer it to you. If you, you whether you choose to swallow it, it's up to you. But if you choose to swallow it, it will change your perceptive about the world in which you live. It will not only change your perceptive about the world in which you live, it will change your perception and your your perceptiveness about yourself, about this church family. It'll change your perceptiveness about God himself. It's a red pill passage of Scripture. In this passage, you know, Paul describes the world behind the world, okay? What's going on behind the curtain? When he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, To stand. A red pill passage in which the Apostle Paul tells us of this cosmic conflict that is going on. And you know, I probably should stop right now because I may have lost someone. Someone may be reading these passages of Scripture along with me or listening to what's being said and they're going, Oh, please give me a break. I am sick of war talk. I'm sick of militaristic jingo talk. I'm just sick. I'm sick of the Iraq war. I'm sick of the war on terror. I'm sick of talking about it. I've got to put up with it through the media. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I barely get a reprieve on Saturday. And then some Rambo wannabe pastor gets up and starts talking war talk on Sunday morning about some Rambo wannabe Bible writer. Please give me a break, all right? 
Now, maybe that person was in first service. I don't know. Maybe you're here today. It's your first Sunday here. You walked in and, you know, what's this war talk? I totally understand where you're coming from. I really do, you know? And those uh, concerns come from a context, right? They come, they're contextual concerns, absolutely. Well, so what I want to do this morning is I want to take some time talking about the context behind this military metaphor, and that's what it is. It's military imagery. But why, what's the context? What would drive, what's driving this metaphor? Why would the Apostle Paul use a military metaphor instead of a shepherding metaphor, right? Why a sword instead of a shepherd's staff? What's behind that? Why is Paul doing that? It's very important. We come, our issues come from our context It's reasonable, isn't it, for us to try to understand Paul's context 2,000 years ago, all right? I want to spend some time doing that. There are three reasons why. We'll talk about that. And then what I want us to do is I want us to examine the meaning of the metaphor itself. What does Paul mean when he uses this military terminology? What message is he trying to get across? What was he saying to the Ephesian Christians who lived 2,000 years ago, and what's he saying to us today, all right? The background behind the metaphor and the meaning of the metaphor, that's where we're going. Let's first talk about the background behind the metaphor. Why does Paul use this metaphor? There are three reasons, and the first is this. The apostle Paul, in using this military metaphor, is drawing from his background in the Old Testament. Remember, he was a Jewish rabbi. He was steeped in Judaism and Old Testament history and tradition. And that tradition included several passages of Scripture which spoke of God as the Messiah King who goes to war for his people fighting the battles that they and no one else can fight for them. That's where Paul's drawing from. And so, specifically... You know, when you see in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul speaking about the breastplate of righteousness, etc., where is he thinking? You know what? He's thinking Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. He, that is Yahweh, God, put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. And why did he do this? He did this because God is out to fight the battles on behalf of his people, for his people, to rescue his people, to redeem his people. God does for us what we cannot do ourselves. And, and, and you, see, you see what's significant about that is that what this tells us is about God. He is not some retired, part, part-time, doting, grandfatherly type of sleeps in the middle of afternoon matinee deity that's distant from his creation. He's active. He fights for his people. He serves them. Oh, yes. Paul made reference of this in Acts chapter 17. We don't serve God as if he needs anything. He serves us. That's the kind of God we worship. And Paul draws from this tradition in these words in Ephesians chapter 6. That's reason number one. 
Reason number two is uh, this. When Paul wrote these words in Ephesians chapter 6, it's important to know that you know, uh, Paul wasn't in his minister's study at the church facility writing out a Randy's Remark Friday email. He wasn't there. No, he was in prison. He was chained to a Roman guard. He was staring at the soldier right there. And so his comments come from there. Now, Paul was a Jewish rabbi who Jesus converted. I mean, he was a Christian killer, and he was on his way to Damascus to kill more Christians. I mean, he felt that was his holy calling. And Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks outside of Damascus, and Paul's life was transformed, and the apostle, uh, the, 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 the persecutor became an apostle a preacher of the gospel. And, and as a result, he was persecuted. And, and he took this calling, he took this mission all throughout the Roman Empire, uh, uh, an empire whose landmass was somewhat comparable to the continental United States. Now think about that for a minute. With chariots and horses and swords and spears, they conquered a landmass 2,000 years ago, but place kind of comparable to the U.S. And, and they had, the Roman Empire had an interstate system, just like we have an interstate system. And so travel could take place in unprecedented manners. And there was military peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, so that travel could take place. And so Paul traveled throughout the empire establishing churches. I want you to see some of the places where Paul went. You see Jerusalem at about 4 or 5 o'clock, and then there's Antioch uh, that's uh, a little further up there at about uh, 3 o'clock. And you can see Ephesus. It's right about smack dab in the middle of the, uh, of the, uh, of the slide there. That is the destination of Paul's letter. And uh, Philippi, we have one of the other letters of Paul there. There's Corinth, Corinthians. Paul happened to be in Rome when he was writing these letters. He was, he was arrested. How do we know that? We know that because the book of Acts tells us in Acts chapter 28, verses 16 and Acts 30 and 31, it says, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself, and then the verse, with a soldier to guard him. So the sol he's, looking at the, he's looking at the soldier right there. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, so he wasn't under, you know, a supermax lockdown facility. No, that, that was, he was in, because he, he wasn't considered a dangerous prisoner. He, he was in a rented house. He was under house arrest at his expense, at his expense. And it says he stayed there for two years, welcomed all who came. So he can't leave the house. He's got a chain attached to a guard, and he's there, and any who come, he shares the gospel and pity the Roman guard who had to guard Paul. <laughs> Philippians tells us. Uh, 
Paul says in chapter 1, do you know the gospel has gone throughout the whole Praetorian Guard? I mean, that Roman guard didn't stay a pagan for long, not when he was in the same room with the apostle Paul. And so Paul is this prisoner in Rome. And so that, I think that's part of what's driving this metaphor, this military metaphor. His Old Testament background as a Jewish rabbi and drawing on the Old Testament passages, the messianic, the Messiah King, and then he himself is in prison. And he, and he wrote to Christians in Ephesus a real place about A.D. 61. Uh, this real place, and I want you to see. I want you to see. Paul was there for three years. And uh, uh, we just have a little snapshot of that life in Acts chapter 19. But uh, uh, there's Ephesus. Uh, it's modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was one of the churches of uh, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. It's a coastal town. Let's see the next slide. Uh, this was the temple of Artemis, which was about 400 feet by 200 feet. And it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And uh, that's not what it looks like today. Uh, that's what it looks like today. That's, that's what's left. But, I, uh, but it's this, this magnificent uh, archaeological dig here. A and the temple of Artemis played into the Apostle Paul's experience in Acts chapter 19. Let's see the next slide, Daniel. Th this is called the Agora, which was the place where commerce occurred in the city of Ephesus. And so it's, uh, it's very likely that the Apostle Paul, along with two, uh, two Christians, a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they set up shop there in the marketplace because Paul supported himself. He was a tent maker. And then, and then that was how he was able to get food. And, 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 and so he sold his wares there in the marketplace. And it was just this huge gathering place. And then one of the most uh, wonderful sites in the city of Ephesus. And it's there. You can go there today. This place is mentioned in Acts chapter 19. It was the theater where there was Near, there was almost a riot. There was a riot in, that it almost had to be quelled by Roman guards. And that theater seats 25,000. I mean, it's, it's, it's right there. So this is a real place. Ephesus was a real city, real people who heard these words for the very first time, Paul. And it was a wonderful, wonderful sight for three years. He just had so much love for the believers there. And he, so he wrote the letter to just continue to encourage them. And, and this leads us to the third reason why the Apostle Paul uses this military terminology. Paul is making an argument in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, that begins in Ephesians 1, 1. In Ephesians 1.1, it's just a beautiful, beautiful letter where he, he writes to these believers and he says, Gee, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We have new life in Christ, Paul says. God has redeemed us. He's adopted us. We've been marked with the Holy Spirit. We've been raised with Christ. We have new life. This, we were dead in our sins, and God just he brought us to life. He changed our lives. You know that, Ephesians. We have new life. And, and then Paul says, we not only have new life, but we belong to a new race, a new race. That's Ephesians chapter 2, where, where Paul says 
In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 14 and 15, that Jesus is our peace. He has made the two races. He's made the two one. Now, from a Jewish perspective, there's only two races. From a Jewish perspective, there's only two races. There's, there's the Jewish race, and then there's everybody else. Okay? And that's what Paul is addressing. He's, he's made the two races one. He's destroyed the barrier by abolishing in his flesh the, 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 the law with his commands. His purpose, get this, was to create in himself one new race out of the two. So what's, what's that mean? That means if I'm white and I belong to Christ, and you're black and you belong to Christ, or you're Asian and you belong to Christ, or you're Latino and you belong to Christ, or you're Jewish and you belong to Christ, or you're Palestinian and you belong to Christ, or you're Hutu and you belong to Christ, or you're Tutsi and you belong to Christ, or you're Turkish and you belong to Christ, or you're Kurdish and you belong to Christ, then we are one in Christ. One new race. And, and, and I heard this, I heard this kind of talk when we were at Restoration Urban Ministry uh, uh, the last time we had table fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ there. Blacks and whites and Latinos and Asians gathered and then someone said to me, you know, only Jesus can heal whatever racial issues we have in our city and that is gospel truth. And not just in our city, church family, in our world. Because we're one new race. We have a new life. We have a new race. And then, and then, verse chapters four and five, we have new relationships. We have new relationships. And, and we are to live as children of light, Paul says. And, and the driving force behind those relationships, the chief paradigm now is that those relationships are to exist in gospel-centered, cross-bearing Christ-focused, submissive love. Submit to one another, Ephesians 5, 21, out of reverence for Christ. And so then Paul lists the key relationships that existed in that church in which mutual submission was to take place. There is a way that husbands submit to their wives. There's a way that wives submit to their husbands. There's a way that fathers submit to their children. There's a way that children are to submit to their parents. There is a way, and this was, this was so radical in crusty Roman patrician society. Society. But in Christ, there is a way for masters to submit to their slaves and slaves to submit to their masters. And it's just, and by the time we get to Ephesians 6, verse 9, have you ever been to like a conference? And it's just, you're at the end of the conference and you're just like, wow, it's like you're at 50,000 feet, you're at the top of the peak, and you're just seeing a whole new vision of the world that you've never been to, you've never seen before. And it's like you're soaring on this vision of what could be, of what could be. Ephesians 1.1 to Ephesians 6.9 is that very conference when you are just, the Ephesians soar with the vision, the spirit-inspired vision of God's new race, new community, new family, new body in Christ. There's unity, harmony, love. This is heaven, Ephesians 6.9. And then Paul says, finally, Finally, and in one word, we drop 50,000 feet to a ground war in a Humvee. And you got to come home from that conference, don't you? And what Paul is saying is that this vision, 
This vision does not go unopposed. And since I'm over on this side of the pulpit, let's just get to the meaning behind the metaphor, huh? There's the background over there. The meaning is this. The meaning is this. Paul says, we're at war. You have an enemy. And the vision of God and the vision from God has hostility from an enemy that wants to destroy the people of God. And that may explain why some of you, when you became a Christian, yes, you experienced cleansing from your sins are forgiven. And, and, and even now, as you are pursuing God, you, your heart is being changed. Yes, this is good. And life is getting hard. Life is getting hard. And you may think, but I thought Jesus was in control. He is. He is. And according to the Apostle Paul, there is a larger war going on. Someone in your family develops a mean streak. They just, they just decide that they're going to be really difficult to live with. Someone at work starts getting on your nerves and they, they keep saying cutting words or they're just selfish or maybe for whatever reason a work crew, a departmental team, they're just not getting along or even a pastoral staff team. Someone's just not happy. Someone's just not happy. Or even in a local church, a group of believers, just they don't like what's going on because it's not the way it used to be and we're going to make our unhappiness known. Or, or maybe the arrangements regarding the children with my ex is just, you know, it seemed to be going so smooth, but now it's not. And there's, there's hostility there. What's, do we see their personal shortcoming only to respond with our own nurtured resentment? Is that what we do? Or do we have the, the red pill perceptiveness? The red pill perceptiveness to see that, yes, besides personal responsibility that needs to be owned, do we have the perceptiveness to see that there are demonic armies in existence that revel in chaos, savor sassy tongues, they adore dissension, and they love hate. They love hate. Can we see beyond the person who hurt us to the more serious enemy? And the enemy is not who you think it is. It's not. The enemy is not your colleague. The enemy is not your ex. The enemy is not your neighbor. The enemy is not your in-law. The enemy is not your least preferred presidential candidate. The enemy is not an abortion doctor. The enemy is not a homosexual or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Mormon. They're not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. He is your enemy. And Paul does not take the time here in these verses to explain Satan's rap sheet. 
He just assumes that the Ephesian Christians know that, you know, Satan was a created being and he was a fallen angel out of pride who attempted foolishly to rebel against the omnipotent God of this universe and as a result was swiftly banished from heaven along with a third of those insurgents. And so, speaking of insurgency, this war that Paul speaks of is no war between superpowers. It is a war that's led by an insurgent. And you may be thinking, well, I thought Jesus won the war. I thought, I thought the resurrection was Satan's death blow. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 1 that the resurrection put Jesus Christ and raised him above every power and authority. But here's the deal, and here's the big idea. The war has been won, but the war is not done. Satan has been defeated, and Satan has yet to be destroyed. Satan has been decapitated, but Satan is not dead. Any World War II veterans here? Any? World War II veterans? Not? They must have been in first service. Fred Smith was. He's 90-something. You talk to Fred. You talk to a World War II veteran. They'll tell you that the last few years of World War II, I mean, was some of the fiercest fighting. I mean, Hitler was fighting a two-front war, Right? The Russians were pushing in from the east. The Allies won North Africa and were heading up the boot of Italy. And then what happened June 6, 1944? D-Day, huh? Yeah, D-Day. Think about this. Over a million Allied personnel involved. A billion. I mean, it didn't take a PhD to figure out who's going to win, right? I mean, just in terms of logistics, money, energy, People, arsenal, what? Hitler was finished, right? He was finished. But did he quit? Did he just stop right then? <laughs> no, that's when the fiercest fighting started. I'm thinking of the Battle of the Bulge. I'm thinking of Bastogne. And why didn't he just quit? Because he's insane. Hitler was just flipping mad. He's just mad. He's going to take as many out on his way down. And that is our enemy, church family. And the Apostle John speaks of Satan's insanity and his desire to make war on the people of God. In the apocalyptic language of Revelation 12, 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. That's us. Satan's just flipping mad. He's a defeated foe, but that doesn't mean he's going to quit. He knows his time is short and the toughest fighting is about to come. And that's why it's so hard sometimes. That's why it's so hard. That's why it's so hard. That's why marriage is so hard. That's why parenting is so hard. Our children can be hard to love. Our parents can be hard to love. Yes, there's personal responsibility around, but we need to understand that beyond that and behind that, there's a larger enemy insurgent and, and then we are involved in a fight. Verse 12 says, for our struggle. And that word struggle means hand-to-hand combat. We're not talking about lobbing missiles overseas. We're talking about the enemy looks you right in the eye. And it's so exhausting. And if you, 
You know, if you've ever been a wrestler or if you've ever been a boxer or if you've ever been a thug, you know that hand-to-hand combat is just difficult, you know. And it's intense. And Paul says that we fight not to just, we don't fight to win the war because the Lord has won the war. We fight to stand firm on the ground which our Lord has conquered for us. And here's the deal, church family, we are the ground that our Lord has fought and won. We are the ground, and we are the ground upon which Satan wants to reclaim. Your marriage is the ground that Satan wants. Your children are the ground that Satan wants. You, you are who Satan wants. You. And so the Apostle Paul says, stand, and you cannot fight sitting down. And you cannot fight lying down. You must stand. You must get up. And so Paul says four times in these opening verses, take your stand. Stand your ground. Stand. Stand firm. That's what he says. Why are we sitting down? Stand up. Stand. 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 Now the question then is, how do we stand? How do we, do we, how do we stand firm? Paul tells us. He gives us three ways. Number one, know your enemy. Do you know who you're, do you know your enemy? Do you know, do you not, not obsess over your enemy. By the way, I'm gonna preach the rest of the sermon with you guys standing up. That's how we're working, okay? <laughs> Work with me. <laughs> know your enemy. No, no, don't obsess over your enemy. Don't worry about your, but know that, you, get the enemy on your, the Bible calls Satan, he's a roaring lion. And sometimes he comes right at you. But then also the Bible says that he is, he masquerades as an angel of light, either way. Either way, either way, you need, to, you need to know this. Satan observes no Geneva Convention. He's dirty, he's ruthless, he's cunning, and he's extremely efficient at drawing you from God. Extremely efficient. C.S. Lewis put it this way. C.S. Lewis once said, Why should Satan tempt you with adultery when golf will do? Don't believe everything C.S. Lewis says. <laughs> no, no, you believe it. He's right, he's right. We think, oh, it's gonna be some big sin that's gonna bring, no, 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 no. Some men die of shrapnel, some go up in flames. Most men die inch by inch playing little games. And that's our enemy. And so you better not go in unarmed. If you think, well, I'm gonna just beat devil as own game. The defeat will be quick, very quick. Listen to this. This is fan- fascinating, I think. This is, comes from a fourth century Roman general, all right? When because of negligence, training was abandoned among the troops, the armor began to feel heavy. And since the soldiers rarely, if ever, wore it, they, they started to ask the emperor to set aside the breastplates and the helmets. And the emperor said, okay. And then 4th century general said this, so our soldiers fought the Goths without any protection for the heart and head and they were often beaten by the archers. Duh. (laughs) 
Although there were many disasters which led to the loss of great cities, no one tried to restore the armor to the infantry. They took their armor off, and when the armor came off, so too came their integrity. And it was only a matter of time that the Goths, the barbarians, were at the frontier gates. Know your enemy. Secondly, wear your armor. Now, wear God's armor. Put on the armor of God. And, and here's what we need to understand when Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God. It's not as if, it's not as if he's saying, now God has this Walmart-sized warehouse that's a munitions depot, and you go in and there's shelf after shelf of helmet and breastplates and shield, and you go in and you pick yourself out one. But no, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, put on my armor. This is the armor that I wore when I fought on your behalf. Put it on. It works. Put on my breastplate. Put on my helmet. Here's my shield. Use it. It works. That's what we're talking about. Spiritual warfare against a spiritual enemy requires spiritual weapons. That's why we fight with truth, with righteousness, with faith. And, and, and yes, we're going to talk in the upcoming weeks about each of these elements and, and you know, there's the belt of truth up there at 11 o'clock. And there's the, you see the breastplate of righteousness there in the, at, at, at 12 noon there. And look at from one to three. There's the shield. You see how the shields were formed together? You see how that works? And then look, look at the image of the, of the, the feet shod. What's that at the sole of the feet? Those are cleats. Those are little, those are little knobby uh, uh, rocks that were embedded in to give the soldier something to stand on. And there's the helmet so they could see their commander. And yes, the sword was a, for short-range combat. It's hand-to-hand, -hand, you see. And it's an armor, listen, that is to be worn 24-7. You put it on and you never take it off, ever. You eat in it, you sleep in it, you shower in it, you don't take it off because Jesus has never lost a soldier against Satan who has kept the armor on. You keep it on and you never, ever take it off, ever. And, and, and what we need to remember is that yeah, we can ask, okay, what does each piece mean? But the, what I want you to remember today is who provided it. It's not about me trying to be more truthful or more faithful or more righteousnessful. No, no, no. It's about God provided this. It works. It's the only, it's the only thing that's going to take our stand against the enemy. That's what he's saying. So you know the enemy. You put that armor on. And then, thirdly, stand as one. Stand as one. Remember, he's talking to a church. He's talking to a community. So it's not your personal individual war, okay? We're together as a church family. We're together as a community. And if you're not feeling strong in the Lord, even though you may think you may have the armor on, chances are you're, you're just spending too much time by yourself. And you need community with others. And that's why Paul, Paul didn't write the book of Ephesus. He didn't blog the book of Ephesus from the leadership summit. He didn't. I mean, he was in prison. And he, this was his means of being connected to his brothers and sisters in Christ in Ephesus and in Philippi and in Colossae. And we stand and we stand together as one. And that's why Ephesians 6.18 says, Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Know your enemy. Wear God's armor and stand as one. That's how. Okay? 
movie number two. But I forgot, didn't you? <laughs> All right, here's the line. Whatever comes out of that gate. <laughs> Say it again. Gladiator. That's right. Let me finish. <laughs> Whatever comes out of that gate, we have a better chance of surviving if we stand together. And, and so, you know, the movie about the general who became a slave, who became a gladiator, who stuck in there in the Colosseum with about a dozen other gladiator slaves and coming out of that gate... Those are the professional gladiators, and they've got their gear on, but I mean, it's just, you know, stay together. Stay together, Maximus says, and an Amazonian archer comes out, and the charioteer comes out, and one of the gladiators thinks he's going to get a he, he ignores the command, and what happens? He's immediately cut down, and the chariots start surrounding, 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 and the knot is about ready to be cinched, and then Maximus yells out, as one, and they attack, and they decimate the stand together in victory. So I want you to hold your hand up just like this. Come on, just like this. And on three, at the top of your voice, I want you to yell, as one. One, two, three. As one! Again, one, two, three. As one! Again, one, two, three. As one! Stand together, church family. We're going to stand as one. We are going to, we are going to put on the armor. We are going to know the enemy. Because the war is not done. We're not fighting to win. We're fighting to stand the ground. The war is not done, but the war has been won. And it has been won by our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, whom we remember now in Holy Communion. Would you please be seated? Heavenly Father, Thank you for your victory, and thank you for giving us your armor. In Jesus' name, amen.